Hey everyone, it's Andy and Scott. And before we get started, we wanted to just take a quick moment to offer our heartfelt sympathy and just say that our hearts go out to all the people that are connected with the shooting in Las Vegas this week and all the folks in Puerto Rico that are dealing with horrific uh, conditions and the folks in Florida and Texas that are still in the midst of recovery as well. Our country's had a really hard go at it lately. And I know there's some people in Oklahoma that are affected by it directly uh, and a lot of us indirectly. We encourage you, if there's any way you can get involved and help, please do. There's folks everywhere that need a, a helping hand. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. And I'm Scott Nelson. And here's where we're at today with Oklahoma politics. Uh, so what we've kind of found out this week is there's been a whole lot of inaction since our last episode. Uh, but uh, floor leader Eccles, John Eccles in the House, apparently sent an email out to House Republicans telling them to expect to return to the Capitol next Monday and with hope of some kind of possible vote on Tuesday. So we'll see what's up with that. Uh, also, we'll talk a little bit about the capital gains exemption as an, a possible option for increasing revenue in, uh, for our state government to the tune of $465 million per year, according to the Oklahoman, right? That's right. Um, We'll briefly discuss the proposed HOPE Act, which is the Medicaid bill that won't die and uh, it needs a death panel. And then um, furloughs for State Department of Health employees, the impact on uh, maybe on our budgets, on our personal budgets of state appropriations being down. Uh, And then later in the episode, we will uh, have an interview with Joe Warren, who's with the OEPA, that's the Oklahoma Energy Producers Alliance. They are the kind of the trade group for the small producers of oil and natural gas. So, um, back to the Capitol on Monday next week. Scott, what do you think that that might mean? You know, I think that I try to look at everything with, you know, positives and, and negatives. And I think the positive is that they're meeting at the Capitol to discuss our state's horrifying fiscal situation at 1 p.m. in the afternoon as opposed to 10 o'clock at night, which is, you know, what we see rather routinely. You know, Floor Leader Eccles has put out that there's this possibility for, you know, that they're at least going to try and, and, and hold a vote next week. I don't think it is at all clear what that vote will be. Um, A lot of folks are hoping for an increase in the gross production tax. Um, A lot of folks from all different industries and political stripes, as it turns out, are hoping for an increase in the the gross production tax. It seems like if that happens, it's going to be 5%, not the 7 that a lot of us would say we really need. Um, You know, if there is a grand bargain, I'm sure that's going to incorporate a cigarette tax uh, as well, uh, the $1.50 per pack to raise an additional $215 million. So some combination of, you know, cigarette tax, maybe gross production tax, um, I don't know if we're going to see much more than that or not. Yeah, I think it could be any of those. It could also be none of those. Absolutely. Um, there's, uh, I think a lot of folks are poo-pooing the idea of cigarette tax or GPT even being on the table. And because Eccles sent the email out, from what I read, he just sent it to Republican uh, members uh, that, I mean, that's his caucus. He's going to talk to them first. Um, but it may be something that they're just going to try to 
fill the budget hole by removing some exemptions, which would only require 51 votes. Yeah. Um, and they could do that with just their one party. They could do that. They could also appropriate funds uh, from the rainy day fund. Um, can they do that with just a simple majority? They can do that with a simple majority, yeah, mm-hmm. as long as it meets the constitutional requirements for how the rainy day fund can be used. Gotcha. All right. Well, I guess we'll find out more about that later this week and certainly next week. Um, Scott, you wanted to talk about the capital gains exemption and what that looks like for the state budget. Yeah. So um, there's a, a study that was released today that there was a capital gains exemption passed that basically says you don't have to pay um, the capital gains tax, which is a tax that is normally assessed on investment income. And there was an exemption passed several years ago that said if you sell certain types of property in Oklahoma, you don't have to pay capital gains on the proceeds from that sale. Um, the study that was uh, been, been kind of talked about on social media and in the newspaper today is that this um, Oklahoma Policy Institute, maybe I think is the one who commissioned the study. I'm not positive that they uh, has cost the state like 461 million dollars um, in revenue, but is not actually creating any new investment, spurring new investment, creating jobs, all the things that tax breaks and exemptions are supposed to do. It's just costing us money, um, and so. And- and that really only impacts people of much higher incomes. Right, right. People who have enough property that, property that they can sell it and uh, make money. Um, and bully for them that they do. Um, it just seems like they should have to pay taxes on that, at least at some rate, even if it's not the way that ordinary income is taxed. You know, I think the other thing we, we kind of started to get into last week and and didn't, didn't quite get to was that we talked about, you know, decades worth of income tax cuts that have cost the state yeah, an estimated $1 billion annually. Um, we know that there is a decrease in revenue um, of uh, from decreasing the gross production tax from 7 to 2%, which we're going to talk about a little more later in the show. We know that there's lost revenue um, from other tax exemptions and incentives like the, the property tax capital gains exemption. Functionally, what that amounts to is when you look at the Oklahoma total Oklahoma budget total appropriations. Um, Since fiscal year 2009, we're down almost 16%. It's like 15.9% across the board, with some agencies having been cut 40%. Um, You know, we keep hearing words about finding efficiencies, cutting cutting the fat off. We, it's okay to make cuts because we have these bloated state agencies. And that's just, even if it was true eight years ago, it's not the case now. Um, I think that there is a case to be made that in times of economic downturn, um, you know, do we want to increase taxes and those sorts of things? And I think that that's a legitimate economic argument that you can have. But what's not being talked about is when you have a a state that's experiencing times of you know economic hardship, which because of the decline in oil and gas prices, Oklahoma has um, in you know a lot over the last eight to ten years. In times of economic hardship, people depend on core services more, not less. So we have this situation in our state where people are needing things like Medicaid. They're needing things like the Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program. They're needing um, meals to be provided for their kids at school. But as those needs are going up, the funding for them is going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge problem. Um, we need to, in my view, take steps to restore funding. I mean, ideally to 2009 levels. That's probably pie in the sky. But 
certainly above where they are now. Um, there's just uh, Oklahoma Healthcare Authority announced today that they're looking at a nine percent provider rate cut starting December one because of the budget shortfall, and they don't know where this money's going to come from. I can tell you that with a 9% provider rate cut, there are a lot of children in Oklahoma who are going to lose their doctors. Right. So, yeah, there was a, an a article that came out today from Dale Denwalt at the Oklahoman uh, about this proposed cut to Medicaid reimbursement rates, so or the rate that Medicaid pays doctors um, or care facilities to care for folks. Uh, and it would certainly be a, a devastating cut. Right now, Oklahoma, um, their Medicaid program pays physicians uh, about 87% of what the Medicare rate is. So that's kind of the, because Medicare is the largest insurance company in the country, we kind of base everything on that as like a middle of the road benchmark. So we pay only 87% of that. And this cut would lower that down to 79%. So our doctors would only get paid uh, 79% of what Medicare would pay uh, for folks that have Medicaid, which is I mean, that's like if someone told you they're going to pay you 79% of what they've been paying you to do the same work, uh, that's no one wants, no one's going to do that. And like you said, doctors will just start saying, I can't afford to see you anymore. And not just doctors, but behavioral health providers, counselors, um, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Yeah. Um, nursing homes. So the, the Oklahomans article also has an interview with uh, Nico Gomez, who used to be the one that ran Medicaid. Now he's at the Oklahoma Association of Healthcare Providers, which is like a nursing home group. And he said right now, uh, nursing homes are already um, underpaid. They get paid $20 less per day than what it actually costs to take care of that person. Um, and there's some folks that you know have, are private pay and that are able to pay out of pocket that make up the difference. So basically, nursing homes are losing money uh, losing $20 a day for everybody that's on Medicaid. Uh, our state, just kind of another way we're circling the drain if they don't, and this is all if they don't find a way to fill that budget hole that was created by the unconstitutional, I'll say illegal. If it violates the Constitution, that seems illegal to me. But it's a fact. A fee. So, all right. Um, Scott, you and I both work in healthcare, and this kind of hits below the belt, I think, for us, um, and really does impact people's ability to go to the doctor, which is ridiculous. Uh, on a related note, uh, the proposed so-called HOPE Act, I forget what HOPE stands for. Gosh, it does not It does stand not, for anything like actual HOPE. Not for actual HOPE. So uh, this was a bill that came up last session. I believe Representative Elise Hall was the one that uh, authored it or ran it. She didn't write it. Um, it's a bill that's come from other states. No, no one actually seems to know who wrote it because it's an out-of-state... Uh, "Quote unquote nonprofit advocacy organization that goes around the country pushing this bill in state legislatures." Yeah, so it's come up in uh, something like seven states, twelve states—I forget—and um, it's a bill that it basically requires everyone who is on Medicaid to reapply for Medicaid every three months. Um, so every so four times a year, you have to go through all the hassle of applying for Medicaid. And if you've never done it, it never helped anyone do it. I have. It's a it's a big hassle, especially if you're someone who is on Medicaid because your life is kind of in disarray and you're trying to get your act together and you've, you're a single parent, you've got multiple kids and you're trying to work full time and get your life together. It's, it's a cumbersome process and I would wager that almost no one would go through that process to get Medicaid because it's already so cumbersome and this would make it 
more cumbersome. And it and it presumes the bill presumes that there is this high level of undetected, undiagnosed Medicaid fraud, which is not within the system, which there's absolutely no evidence of. Number one, number two, we're in the middle of a huge budget hole. We have a structural deficit, and the bill will cost us money. Ten the, million a year. The bill has, will cost ten million a year. Every state that has implemented this bill, it costs money because. The, the the mechanism of operation for this bill is that you hire this out-of-state contracting company right. to actually do the audits and do the enforcement. So we're going to take money that we don't have, that we desperately need for other things, to pay an out-of-state company to Too find fraud that's not there. that doesn't exist. <laughs> there is some provider fraud, but we already have a department that investigates yes, that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and in every system, there's always fraud. You know, like I've got a kindergartner and watching those kids do business with one another, someone's going to cheat someone out of a few M&Ms. They learn it at an early age. Right. Now, so this is, a, in, in my opinion, this is a bad bill. Um, and uh, it keeps coming back up. But this company that you mentioned that is... It's a private company going state to state, being like, hey, implement this law. We'll come in. We'll do the investigations, and we'll find fraud. Well, if they're going to find it for sure, they may be looking for it, and they may find it, quote, I'm doing air quotes, quote, quote, find fraud that's not actually there. Uh, and then it'll certainly cost our state money regardless. And that company, this whole deal is being – they've been sued in Texas and some other state – I think the lawsuit in Texas is ongoing right now. And some other state, they lost. The other company lost. Um, and they got sued for hundreds of millions of dollars for like falsely accusing people of Medicaid fraud. So, all right. So bad news there. If you... Uh, to, say, to say nothing of the fact that we're, we're, in a, we're in a special session right now that is supposed to be dealing with finding ways to save the state money, not spend more. Well, and that was the other thing is that when this came up in committee last week... Uh, that was they had to vote on whether or not they could actually even hear the bill right. if it was germane. Right. They're and like, well, this clearly raises. We know it raises money. It might not. Uh, we know that it costs money. It might not actually find any extra money. So can we even vote on this? And they were like, eh, yeah, fine. But so we, there was a party line vote that said, yeah, this probably is against the rules of special session, but we'll vote and say that it is. And based on the uh, reputation of our legislature to pass laws that are constitutional, this doesn't. This gives me little hope on this. All right, next up is uh, furloughs at the State Department of Health. Do you know much about this, Scott? I know that they have been. Are they occurring? Are they? Thr- I confess, this is one that I don't. I don't know a ton about this. That's right. One. This is in my wheelhouse. So they announced that beginning November first, all State Department of Health employees who make more than thirty-five thousand, so not the lower income folks, but everyone else, will have to. Be mandatory, uh, mandated to take two furlough days, so two unpaid days per month, one per pay period, and um, as a way to make up a gap in funding. Now, they were careful in their wording of their press release to say it's not necessarily due to state funding because they have taken a cut. And I think over the last 10 years, it's like a, almost a 30% cut, but last year it was only like 2%. But they attributed this to cuts at the federal level, which may or may not have actually occurred and this is across the board furloughs even for employees who are currently 100 percent federally funded so one area i know about is like the hiv std service an important service considering that our state is dealing with a syphilis outbreak right now and we have 
like the fourth highest rate of chlamydia in the country, something really high. Um, so anyway, this is a big deal. Uh, that department is almost entirely federally funded by dollars that are still there and will be there. And they too are being required to, to take two unpaid days. If you think about it, uh, so you take one day every two weeks. How many work days are in a two-week period? Ten. Ten work days. You take one of them off without being paid. That's 10%. one out of ten is ten percent. A ten percent pay cut. That's what they have to have is a ten percent pay cut. That sucks. I'll just I'll say it. that there's, sucks. There's really there's no I mean there's no other way to say it. And I think you know we hear stories like this and we see it. And I think that there tends not to be an appreciation for what agencies like Department of Health like the impact that they have on on our state goes largely unnoticed, right? Like they're kind of the the un, the unsung heroes. But you know everybody. There's been a lot of worry about Zika, right? Like if we were right. to have a, a, a Zika outbreak in Oklahoma, the Department of Health would be tasked for coordinating the effort to respond respond yeah. to that. If we were to have a natural disaster or Ebola, uh, e, you know, some other sort of epidemic in Oklahoma, the Department of Health would be tasked with responding to that. Um, the Department of Health plays a vital role in responding to things like tornadoes or earthquakes. Do we have earthquakes in Oklahoma? We have earthquakes in we Oklahoma. Earthquakes. Um, um, childhood vaccinations. Your birth certificate, like there's a tons of stuff that they do. It's a big deal. It's a big department. Uh, and to me, this my hunch is this is failure of leadership at the highest levels. Um, oddly enough, the top dog over there, Commissioner Terry Klein, did request an uh, an audit from State Auditor and Inspector General Gary Jones, who happens to be running for governor. But uh, I had tweeted the other day at Gary Jones, like, hey, what does it take to get an audit of this department? And he said the governor had to request it. And then the very next day, Commissioner Klein requested it. I thought, ooh, did he see my tweet? I doubt it. But it seems odd to me. Commissioner Klein has been there for a few years. And for him to be like, I've been here for a few years. Suddenly we're out of money. Hey, you all come in and you know, audit our books and find out where the money's going. Because, like, doesn't he know after a few years where the money's going? I mean, I mean one hopes. And we haven't even... We haven't even touched on the lab. Um, oh, the, the state public health lab. The state public health lab, which is a part of the Department of Health, um, is in um, dire straits. Um, <coughs> they are unaccredited. They're about to be unaccredited. Yes, which is also a big deal. Um, there are many diseases, more common than you think, that in order to be definitively diagnosed, the test is performed usually at the Department of Health um, because the test is not economical for your doctor to keep in his or her office or for a hospital lab to keep in his or her in, in, in their a hospital lab to keep in stock or for you know, a private like a DLO or LabCorp. Um, so these specimens have to be sent to the health department to be analyzed, tested, and a definitive diagnosis made. And when your lab loses accreditation, that whole process is in, in jeopardy. And there are people who depend on this. Like, we can't just not have a state public health lab. We, and I think they need something like $50 million to kind of, you know, just get everything up to where it needs to be. This is not even to become, you know, a cutting-edge, state-of-the-art leading public health lab. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back... We will sit down with Joe Warren from OEPA. Hey everybody, we're back. We've got a special guest with us today. 
Our guest is Joe Warren. Uh, Joe is a founding board member of the Oklahoma Energy Producers Alliance, or OEPA, a new trade organization for oil and gas that we've got here in the state. Uh, Joe's been in the business for about 36 years, started in 1981. Uh, he's a partner with Cimarron uh, Production Company here in Oklahoma City, uh, has wells all over the state. And we wanted to get him on the show with us today to talk about the gross production tax, the implications that that has for oil and gas producers in Oklahoma, implications that it has for the budget, and just kind of talk about exactly what GPT is, you know, what the rate is now, what we're talking about changing it to, and how that's going to impact everybody. A little bit of a correction. I'm also a partner in Brown and Brelly out of Kingfisher, Oklahoma, which is our sister company and uh, actually operates the majority of our wells, and the majority of those wells are in Kingfisher County. Beautiful. All right. Then do it again. No, that's good. I would say careful on hitting the table there because it'll oh. pick up the sound. So cool. As you kind of lean on it, it'll move it around. Beautiful. Well, Joe, we sure appreciate you uh, coming on with us today. My pleasure. All right. How are you? I'm well, thank you. All right. Ready to talk some of the nitty gritty about gross production tax? I'll be happy to. All right. So for those people that are kind of tuning in to this for the first time, you know, maybe they've heard that this increase in GPT, that's something that's getting thrown around a lot on Twitter. It's getting thrown around a lot on the news and in the dueling press conferences that we keep seeing at the Capitol. What is the GPT or gross production tax? The gross production tax is a tax that is levied on the gross proceeds of the sale of oil and gas. And uh, traditionally, that was 7% in the state of Oklahoma. And uh, it has, in the past few years, was taken to a 2% rate for the first three years of a new well. And uh, I think what OEPA, what the discussion is, the possibility of raising that tax, to, if not to the uh, level that it used to be, at least to something higher than 2%. I think uh, it's probably good to distinguish between OEPA and OIPA. Absolutely. Joe, you want to tell us the difference between those two groups? Sure. OIPA um, is the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association. Um, It was founded back in the um, early to mid-50s by small independent producers who basically needed to protect themselves from the political power that was held by the major oil and gas companies. And uh, they realized that the way, the only way they could do that was to uh, join together and um, unite and basically speak with one voice. And uh, that's what they did uh, until recently. And uh, they they were quite effective. OEPA is uh, the Oklahoma Energy Producers Alliance. Um, That was formed by a group of about 20 uh, former OIPA uh, directors and former chairman that uh, stepped out last spring and once we realized that uh, the OIPA would, could no longer represent small producers uh, when their interests conflicted with those of the large horizontal drillers. Right. I think it's so interesting that the OIPA started to represent small producers and then over time they became less effective at that and they shifted over to bigger producers and so people left to kind of restart a new small producers uh, association. I, I think trade associations are fascinating to see that kind of shift. Well, it's, there is a lot of irony there <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, the new 
back in the 50s, um, and, and, you know, the political power was being held by the uh, the major international oil companies, of course, the big companies now are the large public companies and the uh, uh, private equity funded companies that sure. are using uh, investor money to um, drill these wells. Sure. Yeah. When you when you say small producers versus a large producer, can you give us kind of any idea quantitatively what that means? Well, I, I think you typically see the big horizontal drillers. Um, they tend to be either large public companies like Continental uh, or Devon Oil. Uh, they also there also are a lot of companies that are funded um, in the neighborhood of. Um, several hundred millions of dollars up to a billion dollars or more by uh, uh, private investment groups uh, from the coast and also by um, funded by investments from uh, outside the United States. Excellent. Versus like a small producer is going to be like a locally owned company. Exactly. The uh, OEPA, we are, we want to represent the small Oklahoma independent producer. Um, these are our members are people that are Oklahomans. We're born and raised here. This is where we make our living, uh, where we spend our money. And our profits don't go out of state; they stay here in Oklahoma. And uh, we think those people need to have a voice that uh, protects their interests. You know, right now the large horizontal drillers would have people believe that uh, we are no longer relevant and insignificant and of no importance. And that's just not the case. Absolutely. So it's a little odd, I think, to hear uh, a group that's, you know, an oil and gas trade association to say, hey, this tax overhead's at 2%. We ought to bump that up. That'll be at 7 um, Can you kind of tell us what's the impetus or the reasoning uh, to advocate for this increase in, in the gross production tax? Well, the main reason is that uh, we're all Oklahomans. You know, our members uh, live here in the state. Uh, we live all in communities all around the state. Our kids go to the schools. Um, you know, we rely on the state services just like the rest of the people who live in Oklahoma. And uh, we look around at what's happening now, and we realize that when the gross production tax was dropped to two percent. It was a mistake. Uh, if you the difference between the revenues in gross production tax today and what what it used to be, there's about an eight, it's about eight hundred million dollars lower today, and that's you know in spite of the fact that we're producing more oil and gas today than we have in decades. So uh, and that also happens to be just about the size of the hold and. Oklahoma's budget. So funny coincidence, though. Yeah. So we we want Oklahoma to do well. Um, we still pay. We've always paid seven percent on our production. Um, still pay that on our vertical production on our stripper wells, and uh, we just don't think it makes any sense for Oklahoma's oil and gas reserves, which are a finite resource, to be taxed at 2% on wells that are making as much as four to 6,000 barrels of oil equivalent a day, while stripper production, barely wells that are barely hanging on, barely economical, are paying uh, 7%. Yeah, so that's, um, that's kind of been the thing. And there were some bills passed last session that bumped up that tax rate a little bit, but only on 
wells that have already been producing for a while. How much, um, how much of a of a well's production happens in that first three years? Well, um, these horizontal wells, uh, I've heard numbers uh, in the first three years that they produce anywhere from sixty to eighty percent of their total reserves. <clears throat> the wells that we have, my company has personal knowledge of. We're estimating that they'll. Uh, produce about 75% of their reserves in the first three years. Right. Um, now, the the increase that you're referring to, there was a while um, back in the, uh, probably 10 years ago or so, when horizontal drilling was still pretty much an experimental um, technology and people were climbing a learning curve on, on how to do it. Sure. And uh, they instituted a rate that was at 1%. Uh, for I believe four years, mm-hmm. um, that was replaced by the current law, which is two percent for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was done in the legislature? It really, it was it was kind of a negotiation. That one uh, percent rate was uh, was really sunsetting because uh, it was replaced by the two percent rate, and the wells that were uh, still on one percent, there were only a handful of them left. Right. But, at that rate. So it really wasn't much of a concession it did, in terms of taxes. It did make for a good uh, a conversation piece because you'd hear advocates for the lower rates say, well, would they doubled our rate. And I said, well, they doubled it from 1% to 2%. And yeah. that's, it it effectively a, hand, a handful of wells, yeah, I think. The yeah. number was, I think I think it might have been in the single digits. Yeah, yeah the affected uh, wells on that is is very small on that, that increase that you're referring to last session. Mm-hmm. One thing I think that it's important to make sure that just in case anyone who's who's listening may not know, to make sure that our terms are um, kind of being well-defined. So you've referred several times to vertical production versus horizontal production. Correct. When you say horizontal production, you're meaning these long lateral wells that are, I think, probably most commonly talked about in the context of fracking. Is that right? Well, virtually all oil and gas wells are f- Fracked and okay. have been for uh, many decades. Okay. Um, the difference is these long lateral horizontal wells, instead of having a uh, pay zone of a uh, uh, few tens of feet or a couple of hundred feet at most, you know, they have uh, laterals in the same formation that are a mile or two long. And those are uh, the fracks that are put on them, or they are massive. So the, for those, they drill down a ways and then they drill horizontally. That's correct. The they, uh, they drill vertically and they start building a curve and uh, go uh, horizontal in the pay zone that they're targeting. Okay. And that's in contrast to a vertically producing well, which would be just... Drills vertically straight through the formation, perforates it and completes right. in the um, uh, productive interval. Right. And you mentioned that some of these horizontal producers, these lateral producers, are making four, six, eight thousand barrels a day. We, uh, yeah, there have been reports. I think the the highest I've I've seen. I think Devon uh, had a well that uh, they announced was uh, six thousand barrel oil equivalent a day. Mm. That's um, including the gas that it makes. Right. Right. Is that intrinsic to the, like, is that increase in production intrinsic to the properties of a lateral well, or is that just happens because that's the formation that they were in? Well, certainly, um, they're in a very good area, uh, kind of a sweet spot, and in, in, in a productive, very highly productive formation. 
But uh, a lot of the increases in rates that we're seeing now have come as the amount of uh, fracks that have been done, the amount of perforations and the amount of formation that is being accessed has increased and as has the amount of sand or propent that they are able to put into uh, that formation for each foot of pay they have. Sure. Uh, so so to, if, if, tell me if it's accurate to paraphrase that, to say that we've got a situation where there are wells being drilled that are going to be intrinsically much more productive, but we are taxing those at a much lower rate. We're, okay. taking, we're taking the wells that have the tendency to produce significantly more resources and saying, oh, well, we'll just, we'll tax them at 2% and then we'll take, you know, the stripper wells that are producing what, like sometimes even five, 10 barrels a day, and we're going to tax them at a much higher rate. Is that accurate? That's exactly accurate. Uh, the, the least economical wells in the state um, are taxed at a much higher rate than the uh, most uh, productive wells. And it's, particularly um, when compared to other states. And that was going to bring my next question. It was, you know, we, we hear gross production tax and um, kind of trying to compare what the gross production tax in Oklahoma is to other states. And I think it's probably most appropriate to compare our rate to other states in which there is a significant production of, of oil and gas as opposed to, I, mean, I don't know what state doesn't produce any oil and gas, but I think there's probably 10 or so states in the country that account for most of the production. I, I think that's a fair statement to, uh, on how many major produ- producers there are. And, and, you know, I was actually trying to do this myself, trying to prep for today. And you go out there and you try to figure out. I wound up on the uh, the, the revenue, pace, revenue pages for the uh, tax collection offices of like 10 different states trying to figure out. And it seems like it can get pretty complicated because there's the actual gross production tax. And then a lot of states have an ad valorem tax, which Oklahoma doesn't have an ad valorem tax actually on the minerals themselves, right? But we do have an ad valorem tax on like surface equipment. Is that? We actually, uh, surface equipment is uh, by and large exempt from ad valorem okay. tax. We also do not um, tax mineral ownership. Okay. Whereas uh, most of the states do. Uh, but you're correct that it makes uh, comparing apples to apples pretty hard. Um, we have looked at, there was a study done in the last year or two by the state of Idaho that went in and compared effective uh, taxation rates on oil and gas. Um, and Oklahoma at 7% uh, was the lowest of the major producing states. Uh, Texas is, uh, was a bit over 8%. North Dakota on new oil is 10%. So obviously at... When we're at two percent, we're taxing a fraction of what most of the states are. Well, I, you know, I've heard that even even in states that um, that do have higher rates, aside from just being able to have a better cash flow for operations for the state government, um, it allows them to put some money away in a rainy day fund. And so, Alaska, I think, kind of famously increased the size of their rainy day fund. And the governor said, "Listen, someday this stuff's going to run out, and we're going to need this money." And so they increased it for up to like $2 billion so they could store some away for a rainy day. And here in Oklahoma, I think Governor Fallon had hoped that her legacy might be that we had a uh, solvent rainy day fund and we've depleted it 
all the way down usually multiple times a year um, to bottom it out because we don't have that money coming in to, to fill it in the first place. I think most of our members uh, won't say that's correct. I, I think the uh, cut in the gross production tax uh, in retrospect was an overreach by the industry and it was a mistake made by the state of Oklahoma and it, it's hurt the state and it's hurting it today and going to continue to hurt it. Right. Um, like I say, that $800 million drop in gross production uh, revenues is just about what we're short right. in our budget. And that's just one year. If yeah. We had that money every year. Right. It, it would add up. That's right. Do you, surely you take some heat from other members in your industry for taking a position that you guys should be taxed more. What do you say to those that argue for the lower rates? Well, you know, I think most of the people that are speaking up uh, in opposition to this are investor-owned com- companies, companies that are owned by people who don't live in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, the benefits of this low tax rate, uh, by and large, are going to out-of-state investors. Um, in many cases, uh, companies that are out of the United States, Chinese and Korea, South Korean companies mm-hmm. are among a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not surprising that they would uh, uh, want to keep uh, a good deal when they have it. But it's not good for the state of Oklahoma. And uh, our membership, like I say, we live here. We're raising our kids here, sending them to the, our schools, and uh, it's important to us that uh, we do our part. We we lived with a seven percent tax rate for decades and decades, and uh, the business did fine. The industry did fine, and we can uh, do that again. Um, and I would say that you know, to the extent that we're drilling, and all of our drilling capital that we're putting to use today is taking advantage of this 2% rate. So to suggest that uh, we don't have anything at stake by seeing this raise is simply not true. Right. Right. Yeah. You guys would lose some revenue or lose oh, some sure. money from it. Sure. But you feel like that's the right thing to do for uh, this. We state. absolutely think it's the right thing to do. I think that distinction between um, who owns a company is something that is lost on a lot of people. And I'm, I'm in school for my MBA right now. And so I was someone else who was, this was lost on until I took a couple of corporate finance classes and um, really started to understand that. Yeah. I mean, for any public company, they're going to have thousands of shareholders, but most of those are institutions and those institutions are, you know, big corporate investment firms and they may have shareholders, in other countries, like you said, and some of those may be, um, those investment firms may be from other countries as well. And so that's the part where it's tough, I think, to go back to what Scott said, it's tough to kind of track down all the details for this. And it's way more than most, I think most voters are going to do, which is why we're here talking to you. Well, it is very difficult. And um, we have, uh, of course, one large public company, an active driller in Continental Resources. And, and it is, uh, to his credit, Harold Am still owns over 70% of that company, I believe. Right. Uh, but even in that case, they have foreign partners right. who are putting up uh, a large share of uh, drilling dollars for them, and they're making money off of spending that money. Right. Yeah, 30% of billions of dollars is still lots of money. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, one thing that gets kind of uh, tossed around a lot when we're having these discussions, um, and this, I think, comes particularly from 
you know, statements that I've seen from OIPA and OK, OGA, the Oklahoma Oil and Gas Association, is, guys, I mean, this you take this tax from 2% to 7%, we just can't do it. It's going to cost everybody their jobs. We're basically going to kind of take our toys and go home. And I, I kind of have two questions related to that. The first would be, as a producer, when you are making a decision to drill, how does the kind of the overall tax picture, but GPT specifically, factor in to your decision about whether or not to pursue this resource? Well, obviously we look at our return on investment if we are successful in our drilling. The uh, horizontal drilling is being done now is somewhat different in that it's a resource play. Uh, The reserves are there, it's a numbers game. If a uh, sufficient number of wells are drilled, they're going to have a real good idea um, within a pretty small percentage overall how they're going to do. And uh, the rates of return uh, that they're quoting to their own uh, investors um, are as high or higher in Oklahoma than they are anywhere in the state, anywhere else in the country. You know, we don't see them down in Texas telling the Texas legislature that uh, they're going to leave the state if they uh, refuse to reduce their rate to 2%. And uh, so I think that's kind of indicative, I think, to suggest that this play, which is as good as any play in the country, uh, will be abandoned if um, if rates are raised, which is 7%, is still lower than they, what they're paying all the other places in the country they're drilling. I think to suggest that uh, uh, they'll leave is pretty disingenuous. My experience is that there are uh, companies uh, standing in line trying to get into um, the scoop and the stack plays, and that's not going to change. That's what, I remember hearing that last uh, last year. People said, well, if they leave, someone else from OEPA was, will happily step in because that oil is not going anywhere, and so someone's got to drill it. They're going to drill where the oil is. Right. And, uh, you know, that it's become clear that particularly the stack play is the equal of any play in the country mm-hmm. and better than a whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, if, if these big companies are going to go offshore out into the ocean and build a big platform and drill way down with all of the risks that's associated with that just for a few bucks they'll certainly go into the backyard uh, where it's much easier to pull out of the ground well an increase in tax rate of from two percent to five percent or seven percent is not gonna uh, affect the investment decisions uh, based on the rates of returns that, that these companies are reporting sure sure so you're saying they can still be profitable at Oh, they'll be very profitable. <laughs> in fact, we are, uh, they, some of the rates that we've heard quoted, internal rates of return, relatively speaking, I thought it was in here. Yeah, the North Dakota, the Bakken play, they report 40-50% rates of returns. Oklahoma Stack is... 100%. The scoop plays 70% internal rate of return. And those are <clears throat> and you said North comparable numbers to what they're seeing in the Permian Basin in Texas. And right. didn't you say North Dakota has a rate of 10%? That's correct. Yeah. So it's economical to produce at 40% return with a 
tax rate of 10%, but right. we're supposed to believe that it would not be economical to produce with an expected rate of return of 70 to 100% with a tax rate of 7 That seems like bad math. That's the argument me. that's being made. I don't think it holds water at all. You mentioned that you have, at OEPA, y'all have been talking with legislators, trying to do some advocacy and and kind of make your viewpoint known. How has that been received by members of the legislature? Well, I think um, for as short a time as we've been around and uh, just starting out as an organization, we've done pretty well. Uh, we were involved in the long lateral uh, legislation that, came out of the legislature last spring and uh, um, they actually uh, the vote the initial vote on that uh, would have defeated that legislation uh, the leadership held the vote open for 45 minutes while they strong-armed <clears throat> different members uh, until they got two people to uh, change their votes and, and win it as I recall there was a cheer that went up because it was late at night and and the lobbyists that were in the rotunda there was a, a the the press reported they could hear a cheer come up to the press room um, from people when that vote passed and so uh, that's unusual i was there and uh, i don't know if it was so much a cheer but I mean, <laughs> there was there was but it, it was a hard fought battle and um, you know actually what we are looking for going forward are going to be different things and we want to address um, the issue of vertical wells that are being damaged or, or destroyed by uh, frack jobs that are being done on the horizontal wells. Uh, we would uh, also like to uh, um, address Oklahoma's force pooling uh, laws which uh, we feel are reducing uh, lease values for not just small companies, but royalty owners in the state. We think that they're um, artificially kept down as much as 90, 95% or more what mm. they would be without forced pooling. So tell me about that. I'm not sure I know what that is. Um, it, it's kind of a complicated uh, situation. <laughs> Oklahoma, we have a regulatory system that evolved in a vertical drilling world and actually worked pretty well. The idea being that if you owned some interest in the drilling and spacing unit that, and wanted to develop your minerals, that the other people in that unit um, should, be make, should make a decision on whether they wanted to participate or not. If you couldn't reach an agreement with them, the Corporation Commission would hold a hearing and determine the value of the interest if those parties did not want to participate in the well. Um, and it, it really worked pretty well for vertical wells for a whole lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. We were also only force pooling. We were addressing one drill site mm -hmm. in one action. Today, in a horizontal world, they are force pooling as many as 20 or 30 or more potential drill sites with one action. Yeah. And the rules restricting the evidence as to value uh, that can be entered into testimony are, are so restrictive that it has the effect of uh, suppressing the lease values that are paid. Mm. And um, you know when you compare lease values in Oklahoma to what are being paid say in the Permian Basin, uh, there's a difference of 90-95% or more. Mm. 
So. And it's not like it's nicer territory out there. I've been to the Permian Basin. I don't want to live out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have some very um, good oil plays out there. Yeah. Um, the, there's a one of the major oil and gas analyst companies um, in the world, actually, is a company called IHS. And however, they came out uh, within the last uh, three or four weeks and uh, had an article to the effect that in their judgment that it appeared that the economics in the stack in Oklahoma were every bit as good as the best place in uh, the Permian Basin. And yet Permian Basin is getting 10, 15, 20 times the value per acre that people in Oklahoma are getting. Now, to me, the only explanation for that is the fact that we have this force pooling uh, regulatory system, and in Texas, there isn't effectively no force pooling. They have to make a deal uh, with the other parties in their units. And by having those arm length fair market transactions, it reflects the true value of what those interests are worth. And they're, again, as much as 10 or 20 times what people up here are receiving. Right. How interesting. I think at the end of the day, that's the bigger story. I think if uh, if, if you look at the number of acres that trade hands in Oklahoma in this suppressed market <coughs> versus what's being paid in Texas, it's a difference of billions and billions of dollars right. um, that are being basically taken out of the pocket of our royalty owners right. and transferred out of state and out of country investors. Right. And since those bonuses are taxed as ordinary income, it could be as much as several hundred million dollars a year in income tax that the state is losing as a result. Right, right. So that's a, that's a story that's harder to explain to people. Right. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, it is a much bigger story. Right. It sounds like Oklahomans who own mineral rights for their property are getting shortchanged on the true value of what those what those minerals are worth. I think they absolutely are. Now, when you look at prices that are being paid in Oklahoma t- today and compare them to historical rates, Oklahoma royalty owners look at it and say, you know, this is great. We're getting a great rate. But when you compare what's happening in other states like Texas, uh, you realize that those rates are a fraction of what they should be, especially given that the economics are roughly equivalent for the two different plays. Right. Doesn't doesn't account for just the overall value of it and how that may have changed compared to the market as opposed to compared to your own history of what's... Well, in Oklahoma, we don't have a free market that's the uh, that's the problem sure. and uh, it has just worked to keep those lease bonus values down artificially right interesting well Joe I'm sure you know they're in special session down at the Capitol uh, trying to work out a budget deal um, they're trying to, I think be fairly tight-lipped about what's gonna happen uh, we had one of the leaders in the uh, house come out yesterday and say that they're circling around a couple of options you taking any bets on what you think is going to happen? Well, I don't, you know, I'm hearing a lot of different things and uh, it looks like if there is an increase in gross production tax that uh, 5% is the number that I'm hearing. But uh, I know that there 
are a lot of big companies out there at the legislature trying to pre- prevent that from happening. And, uh, um, you know, they say in politics that money trumps merit every time. Uh, the other part of that, though, is that constituents trump everything. So if enough Oklahoma citizens around the state call their legislators and tell them what they want to see happen, it'll happen. Uh, but there has to be a grassroots response um, for it to be successful. Uh, we've done some polling um, that indicates, and off the top of my head, I think the overall uh, favorable numbers for uh, increasing gross production tax to 7% polled in our poll at uh, 67% favorable. Um, among Republicans, it was 57%. So I think clearly the public uh, would like to see the gross production tax return to its uh, previous rate of 7%. Yeah. And we think that's what ought to happen. I think from everyone that I've talked to, the the consensus is, listen, something's got to give. Nobody wants to pay any more tax than we absolutely have to. But we Oklahomans in particular want it to be fair. Like we all know that politics isn't necessarily fair across the board, but I think Oklahomans would like to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, in particular, we know that we, our economy is reliant on this industry and that they are reliant on this land and that there's a way to, that we can work together to make it fair for everybody so that, um, you know, so that drillers kids have good schools to go to. Um, and it's not just lining the pockets of international companies. Well, we're going to be living here, <laughs> and our kids are going <laughs> right. to be living here. Yeah. So, you know, the, the tax rate, the 2% tax rate, that might have been appropriate um, to incentivize what was a uh, new and risky technology back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's no longer the case. It's not new. It's not risky. And, and it's uh, cheaper now, too. Right? Yeah. I mean, the rates of return and uh, production that is being achieved um, don't need to be incentivized. Well, Joe, uh, this has been a great discussion, really informative uh, for me. I think also for our listeners, we really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate you coming on and answering all of our questions about uh, how this business that is so integral to all of our lives in ways that I think often we don't even see uh, works. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here and I hope you guys continue to take an interest in our industry and, uh, try to stay up on the issues that we're going to be bringing forward on some of these other matters over the next year or two. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Big thanks to Joe Warren for taking time out of his busy day to sit down with us. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter. I'm at AndyOKC, and Scott is at SC Nelson. And you can follow Let's Fix This on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This Okay. And go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, even listen to this podcast from your web browser at letsfixthisok.org. Our podcast is edited and produced by me and Scott and the good people over at Mostly Harmless Media. And our theme music is provided by Hometown Heroes, the Sugar Free All Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage in their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. Remember, 
Decisions are made by those who show up.